Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hi, and welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast, hosted by Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. I am so excited to start our, what we call our fall semester with a two-part discussion about a topic that is top of mind for so many of us, monitors. I have an all-star group of women who are monitors and they're an affiliated monitors with our dear friend, Jay Rosen, and all three work in different practice areas. The first part of this discussion will be about them, how they view the role of a monitor, and then part two will focus on some specific questions. While they're all at AMI now, they started their careers in many different areas. I'll just let them tell you about themselves and their backgrounds. So with that, welcome to Audrey Harris, Bethany Hangsbach, and Dion Lomax. In alphabetical order, let's start with Audrey. Hi, so great to be here today and to speak with you. This is a podcast that my team, when I was in-house, loved to listen to, and I still do. So it's such an honor to be with you. I'm the Managing Director for Global Anti-Corruption Compliance Ethics and non-financial risk for AMI. And yes, that's a mouthful. I started my career through partnership with Kirkland and Ellis, where I cut my teeth on that pre-2004 FCPA matters. And I was really fortunate enough to grow my practice through some of that biggest FCPA matters of that time. Spent so much time figuring out what happened, helping companies to make sure they could show that it wouldn't happen again. So they could have that price of admission for resolution for DOJ, the SEC, and eventually now global authorities. We had matter with the first modern FCPA monitor and also the first self-reporting provision. And then I went on to do what I said I would never, ever do, which was become a CCO for Global Resources Company, BHP, during the first year of their SEC self-report provision. And it was really there based on my expanding mandate in the compliance area and just a really fantastic group of leaders that I really started to mature my approach to holistic non-financial risk and compliance as a value-add. So then I returned to the U.S. as co-chair of Mayor Brown's global anti-corruption and FCPA practice. And really there, I stepped into a lead partner role for a monitor support team. And I found myself focusing on the the exact value-add that I spent so much time on at BHP and the benefit of being an external counsel who had that experience in the CCO chair. And as people like to say, spoke in. So when I was finally relocating my family again, this time not to Australia for me, but to Colorado for my husband's job, I really connected with AMI. And this was just this perfect fit to really to look and continue to build this commercial case for compliance in the value add proposition for not only compliance, but when you have to have them for monitors too in this space. So it was just fantastic to be able to join Bethany and Dion. And I know they'll tell you a little bit about their backgrounds because they put me to shame. Okay, great. I guess then we'll move on. Bethany, you're up. Thank you, Lisa. Those are big shoes to fill. I feel like my background is not nearly as interesting, either geographically or otherwise, as Audrey's. I am an attorney as well. I spent most of my time, in fact, all of my time, actually, practicing law at big law firms. Spent 14 years at Shepard Mullen, where I was a partner defending individuals and corporations before the Department of Justice, the SEC, the FTC, 
all the usual alphabet agencies and some state attorneys general as well. During my time at Shepherd Mullen, I realized that the most fun part of my job was the compliance end of what I did. So the enforcement end I learned was more fun in the beginning. And as I got more and more experienced going up against the government and obtaining what I thought and what the clients thought were very good results, that sort of became second to me to actually rebuilding the corporation and working on the compliance aspect. And that's now what I get to do full-time at AMI as Managing Director of Global Corporate Compliance. I've been at AMI now for almost two years, and I know we'll be talking throughout the podcast about the work we do at AMI. I also wanted to say before I pass it along to Dion, it's a real honor to speak with you, Lisa, and the three of us have been very excited as women coming together and talking about what we do in a space that like many others, is still somewhat male-focused. We're really happy to be here today and are thrilled with the topic. So with that, I'll throw it over to Dion. Thank you, Bethany. And Lisa, yeah, I echo what Audrey and Bethany have said. Delighted to be here. So glad that we could do this together. So I am the Managing Director of Antitrust and Trade Regulation for AMI. In that role, I am responsible for providing oversight for client matters involving competition and trade regulation issues across a host of industries. I'm also a professor at Boston University's Questrom School of Business, where I teach business law in the undergraduate program and in the integrated risk management module in the online MBA program, and occasionally teach various seminars at the Boston University School of Law. After completing a federal judicial clerkship after law school, I was accepted into the Department of Justice Attorney General's Honors Program and essentially started my career as an antitrust attorney at the Antitrust Division in the Healthcare Task Force. While I was there, I analyzed and investigated proposed mergers. I worked on a variety of conduct investigations and, of course, was part of several trial teams. But after leaving the DOJ, I continued to practice antitrust law. I fell in love with antitrust at the DOJ and worked as a partner at antitrust partner at two national law firms, where I literally spent the vast majority of my time working on very large, complex matters, some of which involved negotiated consent degrees, some of which involved me working with a monitor and helping a client who had to comply with consent decrees that required a monitor. So the question is, how did I get to AMI? I actually like to think that it started with following my parents' advice when I started my first job. My parents always told me and admonished me to do everything with excellence, and they told me, don't burn bridges. (laughs) So I think that advice paid off because my former DOJ colleague, Jesse Kaplan, who is now Managing Director of Corporate Oversight at AMI, reached out to me probably about I don't know, three months after I left private practice and essentially asked me to consider working like as a consultant on a matter with him at AMI. And not long after that, I formally joined AMI as a managing director, and I'm so glad that I did. Thank you. It's really uh, all the work you all do is so interesting. And again, I'm just so thrilled to be able to talk to all of you, even as we've been preparing for this, just getting a few minutes of your wisdom and discussions has really just been huge and a lot of fun for me. So I can't wait to keep sharing that with everybody else. So with that, you all just mentioned your background and some of your focus. Can you talk a little bit about how you work as a monitor, whether it's 
retained by clients or as a federal monitor or some other form. So we can start with that. And Dion, we'll start with you this time. Sure, that's fine. So I've worked in a few different capacities upon joining AMI. I've worked as part of a team retained by clients to provide what we call proactive assessments of a company's compliance program, antitrust compliance program. I'm currently working on certain aspects of a monitorship involving federal antitrust laws as it relates to a negotiated settlement to resolve some concerns about a merger in the telecommunications industry. I'm also working as a monitor in connection with a negotiated settlement involving private plaintiffs and a state attorney general's office. So a little bit of variety there for me. Okay. And Audrey, let's hop over to you. Absolutely. Now, I think that was the biggest change for me in joining the AMI was really thinking about outside of just typical fraud section monitorships that I had seen quite a lot of times as an external and really thinking about what other things, and it's amazing what the AMI team is doing. In the proactive space, absolutely, I'm working on a number of those, but also in the state AG space, which on around consumer protection is really expanding right now, and agencies. So whether it's Department of Defense or the FCC, and using them not only when there's an enforcement issue, but actually to enable, right, to enable a transaction to go forward where it might not have previously because of concerns about maybe a government program or, as Dion mentioned, antitrust. So those kind of enabling a transaction monitorships, as well as the plethora of the monitorships at the state AG and agency levels was really something that was exciting that I really wanted to jump right into and have been really fortunate to be a part of. While I have that corruption background, my team's mandate in-house really started with anti-corruption, competition, trade, and export, but really grew. And I think a lot of different CCOs have seen that recently with ethics, hotline reporting, and code, internal investigation, state and commercial secrets, and even market manipulation came into my mandate. And I think it was really companies realizing that it's all about right now holistic non-financial risk and really to make informed risk decisions in that Venn diagram that really is all of these different subjects that are compliance. So it's really fun right now to be working with not only in areas like of anti-corruption and what I'll call the behavioral risks issues around non-financial risks for, for AMI clients, but to just really expand into these other areas as well and look at how all of those come together and really impact companies. Just really enjoying working on both those proactive reviews and those monitorship teams, much bigger than I ever really have. Bethany, yeah, go ahead. George, just to add to that, I think one of the things that Audrey said is so important and I've noticed it too in, in my practice, the expansion of monitoring as a tool has obviously been very, it's had a huge impact on, on all three of us and our work at AMI. So when I was practicing law, I traditionally thought about monitorships in the DOJ fraud sense. And that was my experience with monitorships was representing clients who were under monitorships after investigations out of the fraud section. And what I've learned since being at AMI is that partly, I think, because of the effectiveness of monitoring as a resolution solution, monitoring has really expanded. To answer your question, Lisa, about whether we do federal or state work, we do lots of work for the FTC, the DOJ, many states, as Audrey mentioned, consumer protection right now is huge at the state level. So we work with a lot of state AGs in those matters. 
as well as healthcare antitrust, which is a subject near and dear to Dion's heart as one of the really just preeminent minds in that space. So we'll talk about that a little bit later, I'm sure. And then one final point, I actually just recently became the lead monitor on a matter for a city and a county who jointly sued a corporation. Traditionally, we would have, I think, thought of those matters as smaller, but this is a multi tens of millions of dollars settlement with a very complicated monitorship. And so I think in terms of where we're doing our work, it's expanding all the time. Yes, that is just has followed right into one of the things that you've talked about, all the different areas in which you work from federal, state, how you're retained. But in your particular subject merit, subject area expertise, does the role of the monitor also, is it different when you're specializing in healthcare or antitrust or just the regular? How does you know, the different subject matter of your monitorship, for lack of a better term, impact how you do the role? So I think we'll start. I think that we maybe Audrey, you've talked, you guys have talked about it a little bit. Does anybody else have anything else they want to share on that? Deanne, I thought you had some yes. really good points I, on that one. Yeah, no, absolutely. What I would say is that the role is not necessarily different depending on the area of expertise or the industry involved. I think the role is largely dictated by the parameters of the work we are asked to do. And so the, although from an antitrust perspective, I'm applying my knowledge of antitrust law to different matters the way I use that knowledge is going to differ based on the particular engagement. For example, when you're talking about a negotiated settlement with a federal or a state antitrust enforcement authority, the role of the monitor will largely be dictated by that agreement, that agree that negotiated agreement. So in some cases, I might be investigating allegations of noncompliance. I might be serving as a neutral or an arbiter of a dispute that may come up. I might be performing a proactive assessments and audits of an existing compliance program. So I think that in each case, I'm, I bring my antitrust knowledge and expertise to bear on the engagement in different ways. And so I would say more than anything that the substantive area of expertise really helps to inform the work more from a more broad perspective. That makes a lot of sense. I, I guess I'm just going to say when I think about it as a in-house in, in I think about it a lot of how do you deal with your either your different constituencies or subject area, subject matter areas within that or geographically how I approach an investigation that's in Asia or Japan versus India versus the U.S. versus Canada. I still need to learn the same information or handle it, but it's often very different what approach you take and how to be most effective. So I was thinking that might be similar. But to what you, and I think it is similar, especially in the external or in the in-house realm, where you're also working with, when you go to a different jurisdiction, maybe those same, but you may also partner with some local resources, right? When you're doing that, or you may work, if it's a specific subject matter within your in-house purview, you may need a little bit of expertise on that one in that particular jurisdiction. And that's where we really use subject matter experts. And Bethany has been working in a number of her teams have subject matter experts that also join the AMI team for, for giving that additional expertise or additional geographical coverage. Bethany, if you want to talk a, few, a little bit about that, because I think that's very unique at AMI as well. It's actually one of the things, Audrey, that, that I like most about AMI is that our teams tend to be extremely broad in terms of subject matter, not necessarily just expertise, but subject matter, how do I say it? I guess the, what each individual has to offer. And the best way to give you an example of this is to talk about different sections of AMI. 
the three of us are managing directors. So we're typically lead monitors on an engagement, but we have a very robust support staff that's made up not only of young lawyers who are fantastic and we've all worked with wonderful young lawyers over the years. But as I always like to say, if you've ever had the painful experience of asking a first year associate to read a balance sheet, you'll really appreciate the financial expertise that we have at AMI. I have, for example, a former CFO of several startups on two of my teams right now. She's invaluable in terms of really sorting through the financial analysis. We also have we also have data analysts who who can slice and dice the data in ways that make my head spin, but I'm just really glad that we have them. So I think that subject matter expertise and and the breadth of it is really important. And then we are not hesitant to bring in subject matter expertise from the outside when we need to. I think it's really important to know what you don't know and we don't try to do everything. If we are in an area that one of us is not particularly comfortable with and is not a subject matter expert in and of ourselves, we will not hesitate to bring in someone who can fill that role for us. Great. That's really, really helpful. So now talking about that, I also wanted to ask about when you start as a monitor in any of these different forms, and you're looking at a program generally. This is probably one of the main things we're thinking for me as a person in-house and many of us. What do you see that the organization is putting itself or has the intention to, in reality, put themselves in a place for current and particularly future success? So I'll kick us off there. And although some of my comments will be antitrust centric, I think that they can be brought in, of course, to other substantive areas. I think that a company is setting themselves up for success when we see that they are ensuring that there is a culture of compliance, when they are ensuring that there are adequate resources devoted to the program and that any training that they're doing is tailored to the particular issues faced by that company. That includes making sure that they are frequently assessing the program to make sure it's actually catching the issues. And I like to say not catching them just in general, but catching them in their infancy. And so from an antitrust perspective, what I'm looking at is I'm looking to see, do they have an antitrust compliance program that detects is designed to detect the legal activity that is occurring in the company as soon as possible after it occurs? Are they preventing employees from engaging in conduct that violates the antitrust laws? And I actually like to also always, and I used to when I was in private practice, extend this to, is there any suspicious conduct that could trigger a protracted or costly government investigation? Because that costs money and time and resources, and we don't want that either, right? Clients don't want that either. And then also I'm looking, are they engaging activities that help to reduce the company's financial exposure to antitrust penalties and fines. So from an antitrust perspective, I think a few practical ways to ensure the effectiveness and the things that I look for from a practical standpoint are, like I said, ensuring that the that it's properly tailored, that it's not a, just an off-the-shelf program, that it's really designed for, has there been an antitrust risk assessment? Where are those risks? And is the program designed to really get at those specific risks? Is it a fluid program? Is, can it, does it change? Are they changing it and enhancing it as, they, as the risk profile of the company changes from time to time? Sometimes in the antitrust world, of course, we're talking about monopolies and market power and all that. So are they conducting periodic market power screens for those segments or divisions of the company that have 
maybe a dominant share and a greater risk from an antitrust perspective in terms of their conduct or behavior. And also, like I say, are they adopting? We, we all know training is important in the compliance world, but when I'm thinking of it with my antitrust hat on, are they adopting a risk-based approach to that antitrust training program? Meaning that everybody's not necessarily just getting the same milk toast training. Are they making sure that they're devoting specific resources and, and being about how they train the sales reps who may be more on the front lines and may have a greater exposure to antitrust concerns versus other parts of the company, right? And then, of course, documentation. And Audrey will talk about the importance of documentation, I'm sure. But, but the other thing I'll say before I turn it over is really ensuring that the company has devoted adequate resources to overseeing the compliance, assigning the appropriate people to oversee that compliance. Sometimes what I've seen be effective that I view as a company setting themselves up for success is if they've if they have trained certain maybe mid-level managers on, managers on antitrust issues and they've embedded, they have these antitrust, little mini antitrust gurus embedded throughout the company in the business where they can monitor activity and report up the chain. So I, I think that these are just some of the best ways to catch violations in their infancy to prevent an antitrust violation from occurring in the first instance. I think that's right, Dion. Just to stress a couple of those points and add maybe a few additional perspectives. So the culture is so important, and I just can't stress that enough. And I know that it might sound like something that's not able to be measured, but I can tell you as monitors, when we walk into an engagement, it becomes crystal clear very quickly what the culture of the organization is in terms of the emphasis on compliance. And so underscore Dion's comment about, about the culture. The other thing that I would add is one thing that sticks out to me is whether a corporation or whatever the entity is that is being monitored, because it's not always a corporation, is doing self-monitoring. And this is something that we unfortunately see the inverse of so often. A company can have a terrific program on paper. They could even have a program that seems to be working in practice, but they can't show you that. They can't tell you what the data is. They have no benchmarking, no metrics to say, this is the internal audit or review that we did, and this is how we know our program is working. That is something that I think some of our smaller engagements, corporations, and these that are not as sophisticated are learning that they do to to develop. But that's something that always sticks out to me is an entity's ability to self-monitor. Yeah. And Bethy, I think you're completely right on that. And I agree with everything that both of you said. I think I just add that people behave the way they're incentivized to behave, right? And they move away from pain. So you do have that feeling as soon as you walk in and I always say, give me 30 minutes with the CEO or 30 minutes with the CCO. And I'll tell you, if there is that yes man or yes woman culture, that that lack of tolerance of divergent thinking and questioning. It only takes a couple of times for everyone to get the really clear message there and their behavior will follow. When I'm going in and looking at compliance teams and compliance programs, I want to see is that compliance team engaged and are they engaged with the business? Are they isolated? Where do they sit? Are they in the basement somewhere and they're sending emails up to them? How are they engaging with the business and how does the business engage with them? Do, is there a poll? Do they pull towards the compliance function and get them in early on transactions and questions 
where they can really be that guide and that problem solver? Or do they wait to the very last minute and go, oh, go check with compliance? And where compliance is put in that box where they either have to say yes or be doctor no. They have to be that gatekeeper function. So how early and how often does the business engage and does compliance engage with those business teams? And does compliance know where their pulls and their pushes are? To me, that means, does your compliance team know who are your compliance constituents that are pulling you into these meetings early? And where do you have to push? What business sectors, what areas do you have to push to get that seat at the table or to push your your professionals in the door to be able to know what's going on in there? And that's going to really be a great way, an anecdotal way to talk about risk. Got to see your metrics and everything, but you want to know where the real risks are? Feel where you've got to push in instead of where you're being pulled in. And I always do one other thing. I really look at where within a company is the highest area of pressure and the least area of perspective or limited perspectives. So this may be a division, a new merger, something else that the company is undergoing where there's a lot of pressure for some reason to meet targets or do something else. And they may be isolated. They may be a new for others or physically isolated for some reason. And I used to tell my in-house team, compliance's job is to go in and build institutional pillars in there through processes and through counseling and through being that second line where they can, those business folks can relinquish that pressure and they can get the broader perspective, right? So building those institutional pillars. And in order to do that, you have to know where your highest areas of pressure are and where those limited perspectives are. You've got to know where your pulls and pushes are and you've got to engage with the business. So those are things that I'm looking for when I it's really interesting. One of the things that I think about a lot in that context, or at least in-house, is one of my roles is to try to empower, I say empower ethical decision-making, so that at that moment that somebody is sitting there feeling pressure externally, internally, or somewhere else, they have the confidence to either say this is wrong or wait, I'm not sure about this, and I have resources as opposed to thinking I have to go along to get along, to give them the tools. That's a day-to-day way it's a lot, it's at a much different level, but I think a lot as you've been talking about pushing and pulling, that's one way to at least give people that. And on the other hand, if they feel like I'm nervous to make, to be that person, they at least know that they can call us and then we can be a no person for them. Or we- Pillar, yeah. you'll hold that weight for them. And I've said that to people before, you shouldn't have to hold that weight on your own. We hold that weight. The company through its processes and its values will hold that weight. But if the compliance is the embodiment of the pillar that's holding the weight for folks to allow them to make that ethical decision making, we're doing our job. And that that's just a, a fantastic feeling. Yeah. And that's the big part of it also is that they have to deal with all of these people all the time. I may not. So it mm-hmm. sometimes it really helps from that approach as well. That doesn't mean they can't not own their own decisions, but it is a, a no, one way of thinking about it. You're bringing that perspective, right? You're bringing a new perspective in it, not the day-to-day relationship perspective by you entering, you're not only holding pressure for them, but you're bringing that broader perspective. Yeah, that's that, that's. And I think we touched on a bit. I was going to ask you some more about red flags, but I feel like a lot of that's probably the opposite of what we've just been talking about, unless there's anything specifically that, you've all seen that you'd want to say, you just walked in and went, I just want to walk out the door. I actually have one that I just have to add, and I'm going to try to tie this so that I'm not <laughs> identifying anyone that I shouldn't be. But one thing that, that I have seen way more often than I should is individuals in compliance roles who are grossly unqualified to be there. 
And to me, that is a huge red flag. And I think, thankfully, we're getting away from the days when we can just pluck someone with no compliance background or even in some time, even sometimes not the appropriate education or experience level and slap a title on them and say, you are going to be our compliance officer. But I just have to mention that as a red flag because it happens more often than one would Yeah, and I just piggyback on that and say, maybe not piggybacking, but adding an additional point. And that is, for me, the biggest red flag is where it really is apparent that those in the company, they they just don't really view compliance as their responsibility. Because what that tells me is that there's not a culture of compliance in that company and things are likely run amok. So that's a huge red flag. Yeah. And I would, I know I mentioned before, but 30 minutes with the CCO or CEO, you get, you, you can learn a lot. Not only, as Bethany talked about the expertise, if the person in the role is grossly underqualified, but even their strength of personality, their curiosity, it is one role. And I know we'll talk about that probably later when we talk about the Monaco memo, but that role is a CCO role or your head of compliance is so influenced by the strength of personality and the strength of curiosity of the person in the chair, maybe unlike other roles in a company. So that's, if someone in that doesn't have the expertise or really doesn't have the interest or the personality to be in that role, it, it's a big red flag for me. Yeah. That, those are all really good ones. And you will see, and I think the profession has evolved. So you're seeing fewer and fewer people who just got put in there just because the consequences have become big over time. So and one last question before Audrey gave us a spoiler alert for part two, because we're all talking about the Monaco memo. So you all be ready for next week. But before that, what advice would you all like to give to women who are thinking of becoming a monitor? And have you faced any specific challenges that you want to? What I'd like to say there is that, and I think Audrey has already, has, okay, edit this part out. Audrey has already stated this, but I will just restate that just like other areas of the legal industry, I have found that compliance monitorships remain a male-dominated industry. And in that vein, I think that a woman entering the field should basically be prepared for that. Don't think that just because you're like, whoo, I'm done with big law, I'm good, somehow moving into the monitor space is going to look any different. That being said, I think that as more eyes are open to the importance of diversity in corporate America the importance of diversity at law firms, diversity in in-house legal departments, as that continues to evolve and embed itself in the fabric of our industry, I think that hopefully we'll see those things evolve and change and we'll see more women being named as lead monitors in various matters. Because I'm not sure we see many women being named as lead monitors as we would like at this point. The other thing I'd like to say, and the other tip I would give is that recognize that your diverse perspective is a benefit to any matter that you work on. Be confident about what you bring to the table. Be bold yet thoughtful about what you're contributing and about your approach to different matters. And don't shrink back. Don't shrink back if you're the only woman, or in my case, the only woman of color in the room, which is often the case, sadly. And that your voice matters just as much as anyone else's voice. I think that's a great point to, to stop on. And, and I think it really diverse perspectives. We are a, a podcast primarily about women and compliance, but diversity is really a thing that is of importance, especially for 
you know, for monitors, for us being able to assess risk, for us to be able to actually be vibrant and good corporations who do the right thing, or any other non-corporation organization or anyone in terms of diversity I may have missed in terms of diversity of organization. So with that, I just want to thank you all for part one. And on behalf of the Compliance Podcast Network and Mary Shirley and me, thank you to the all-stars of Affiliated Monitor, and we will be talking more. Thank you, Lisa. Great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.